Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm super excited to be back here at the Process AI Marketplace and especially pleased for the opportunity to speak with Prashant on the topic of building technical communities and the opportunities created by data and AI. As Paul mentioned, I will be monitoring the Q&A panel for your questions and we'll either work them in or we'll have some time at the end, but really looking forward to this. So let's just dive in. Prashant, I imagine that everyone here in our audience has some personal experience with Stack Overflow as a user. But what can you tell us to help us understand the scale of what you've built? Yeah, no, thank you, Sam, for inviting me here and for moderating the session. Also, congrats to you for building such an amazing community around this space, particularly in AI and ML. So it's been amazing to see all that you've accomplished. So yeah, so Stack Overflow, again, I can't take all the credit for you. So we really, our community and our founders and the team that has sort of been here for about 13 years we were founded in you know 2008. I joined as the, the new CEO in 2019, and we had you know several amazing leaders that have joined since to help us sort of scale to this next level. But the scale at which we operate is massive, right? So we have close to 100 million monthly visitors from around the world, right? There is you know no geography that we don't touch for the most part. We have something like 50 million questions and answers on every possible technology topic. So you know everything from Amazon Web Services, which has something like 250,000 questions and answers, or something like even data science, which is obviously near and dear to this audience. We have something like, you know, 31,000 questions in that sort of space alone, or any scripting language, programming language, you name it, right? So all that content exists in a very sort of significant way. And that information has been accessed close to 50 billion times since our inception. So the impact of what we drive in the industry is massive. And since we are talking to a data-specific audience, uh, just to put that in terms of terabytes, that in terms of you know the access, the public actually access, has access, and all of you in the audience have access to about one terabyte worth of questions and answers and comments that are available for you know your own sort of analysis and you know, other things that you can do with that. But internally, we have something close to seventy terabytes of data available for our own internal analysis. So, you know, fairly meaningful scale. And having said all that, I would still say that we're fairly early in that sort of evolution. But that hopefully gives you a sense of how large we are and we operate, you know, obviously globally. That's awesome. Awesome. So beyond the stats and figures, what are some surprising things you can tell us about Stack Overflow that, you know, most folks might not realize or know? Yeah, I think most people know us as the public website with all the stats that I just explained. And that's been sort of, you know, what has been driving the impact in the industry for the past 13 years. But most people probably don't know or do not know that we have a very thriving, fast-growing SaaS business and a very fast-growing advertising-focused business. And those are our two business lines that have been sort of, you know, thriving throughout the history of the company, but more recently, our SaaS transformation, which is one of the reasons I came on board along with the, a few other leaders, has really been really exceptional to see, right? That is effectively a private version of our public platform that I explained, 
for enterprises and other sort of organizations to use internally to collaborate uh, asynchronously using the same platform that developers and technologists have been enjoying over the past decade or so. So that is, you know, probably the most unknown fact. When people go to Stack Overflow through a Google search, land on an answer, they typically get the answer. They're in the workflow of trying to, figure, you know, get unstuck and they're on their way. But typically what now we're beginning to surface more and more that, you know, we have these paid products that are equally useful and value added as for a user as they say they operate within organizations and companies. Great. Paul mentioned that you joined in October of 2019, so just about two years ago, and you stepped into the role that was previously held by the company's very well-known founder, Joel Spolsky, and Jeff Atwood as well as like a very strong founder culture at the company. And I'm curious about how that transition came about, what the culture of the organization was like, and what were your priorities when you joined? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's a huge blessing to have amazing founders, right? Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood, 100% credited with you know what they've actually built, right? They, along with the community and the stackers that have that were here in the first decade of the company, built this amazing community and public platform that you know, the stats that I mentioned are a product of their sort of very you know blood, sweat, and tears to be very thoughtful about how to make trade-offs and how to ensure ultimately that the best answer is ultimately deliver to somebody that is stuck in a, you know, in a technical situation. And so what happened was, you know, the company grew in terms of its impact. And then there was this question of what is a sort of sustainable business model for the company going forward? So there was this sort of existential question. And I you know Jeff Atwood had sort of left the company several years ago as the first founder. So the remaining, the founder, Joel, was the CEO of the company. And through 2019, he sort of just along with the board of the company, which was, you know, all, you know, previously a bunch of the, you know, the fairly prominent venture capital firms like Union Square Ventures and Index Ventures and Spark and Andreessen Horowitz and so on, decided that it was time to bring in some external perspective, somebody who had helped grow a very rapidly, you know, scaling organization, especially as we thought about the SaaS business model or the software as a service business model. So... And you know, fast forward a little bit after about 250 interviews with many different people, they you know they literally, you know, I think they did talk to about they screened about 250 candidates. They did end up finding me, and I was relevant for the role and for a couple of dimensions. One is, of course, I was a user of Stack. All my teams at Rackspace, as with introduction was mentioned, use Stack Overflow throughout. So I was obviously very aware of it. My teams were very aware of it. So there's an appreciation for what this community stands for and what it does. And at the same time. My personal experience of having sort of helped scale a cloud services business at Rackspace to help pivot it from a data center company or managed hosting company to more of a services company on delivering services, cloud services on top of AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud, that which became one of the fastest growing businesses at Rackspace, that experience was also relevant here because there's a sort of opportunity with this raw material and this, you know, this diamond in the rough with Stack Overflow. How do we really scale this organization? So those two sort of elements, one, my own sort of real appreciation for what this community is all about. And secondly, my experience is really ultimately what brought me here. And since then, we've hired some amazing leaders who you asked, you know, how the transition's been beyond, of course, meeting with community members on my first year, meeting with customers, meeting with stackers, as we call them, our employees. And really, you know, I'm a fairly hands-on person in that regard. You know, I think it really is important for leaders, in my opinion, to be, to understand and to have context when making decisions. 
that gave me perspective. Okay, like we have a certain set of things that we need to do. Here are the gaps in the organization, the types of new leaders we need to bring in. And very soon, I was able to bring in several very, very capable folks. You know, first, uh, my first hire was the chief product officer and technology officer, Teresa Dietrich, who is connected with this group now, amazing leader who's leading product engineering and community efforts in the company. Tim Miller, our CRO, who's a fantastic uh, revenue uh, leader, who's leading all our sales efforts and customer success efforts and really driving the predictable revenue path. And then since then, hired several other folks to augment the existing team. So hired a new chief people officer and a new uh, CFO very recently. So all with experience of folks that have been there, done that, and are able to sort of take us to this next stage of the company's sort of evolution. So it's a very much a transformation story to get to this sort of end, end game, as I mentioned, with a sustainable recurring revenue sort of business model on top of, of course, uh, a great community. Got it. So unique position of having led teams of rackers and stackers. You got it. Yeah. I, I, my first, I got to say, Sam, my first, you know, month or two, I constantly sort of mix those terms up. I was like, Hey, rackers, you know, like if people are like, Whoa, like where, where did that come from? But it, it does rhyme, but yes. Nice. Nice. Little did you know, after joining six months later, you'd be helping lead the company through an event that affected many lives, many organizations, of course, the pandemic. What was the impact of the pandemic? on and at Stack Overflow? Yeah, on a couple of different dimensions, right? So by the way, I joined October of 2019 and I've been you know, effectively a remote CEO for probably more than 75% of my time. Now that comes with positives and negatives. So let's just talk about both dimensions of the impact of the company, right? So one is on the positive side, let's start there. We have seen a significant increase in the relevance of our company in this moment in time because you know, what we really enable is to help the world really accelerate development of technology. And that's effectively what our mission is through shared knowledge or, you know, by sharing knowledge with each other. And that has allowed numbers to really sort of go up. And if you look at the, just the overall volume of the number of signups as one small proxy, we had, when I joined, about 150,000 monthly signups on our public platform. Today, we see something somewhere between 200 and 250,000 signs per month. You know, again, just remember, this is 13 years after we were founded. So not insignificant, it's only going up. If you look at the number of users, whether they're mostly people do it somewhat sort of, uh, they're more lurkers than there are sort of contributors. But net-net, we still have a lot more users. But we see the number of people on our platform increasing very steadily year over year. So every year we seem to be sort of increasing and we've seen that increase quite be dramatic over the past couple of years since the pandemic. Our, the relevance of our paid products have also skyrocketed. So our Teams product, Stack Overflow for Teams, which I would encourage the folks in the audience, if you haven't checked it out, go sign up for a freemium account and try it out for yourselves and for your own teams, which you can do on our website. That is very relevant because it's an asynchronous collaboration tool that sits alongside synchronous collaboration tools like Slack and Microsoft Teams. You can't just you know, run an organization or collaborate with each other with just synchronous tools because it's extremely debilitating for technologists because it's a lot of context switching and people are prone to burnout in those scenarios of constantly being pinged. You know, while we've been on this conversation, Sam, if I look at my Slack window, I've got about seven <laughs> pings, right? And what if rather than me having to wait an hour to respond to them, what if Stack Overflow for Teams has already responded automatically through the Slack integration that we have by suggesting questions and answers that have already been documented through our system? So that's the product that we have, Stack Overflow for Teams, as this one small example. But 
The point is that that product's relevance in the context of remote work and hybrid work has gone up you know, very significantly. So we're very much in big enterprises making the case for why they should use our product. And then our advertising business reach and relevance has also sort of increased because people want quality places to showcase their products that are helping with acceleration of technology development and you know, all the other buzzwords like digital transformation. But the idea is that we are the place. We are the place where the communities for technologists exist. And that's why it's so powerful. So that's all the good stuff, right? And one other good point I'd mention is that we've been really able to expand the locations of where we are hiring people from. So for example, all the leaders I mentioned to you, a bulk of them have come from California. You know, we were known as a New York-based startup, but we've been able to really expand our aperture on the types of people we hire. So those are all positive things. Now, the negative things about what's happened is that it's taken a personal toll, as you mentioned, to people all around the world. And, you know, I think a lot of different issues have sort of come to the surface around the world that we've had to sort of navigate as a company and support our stackers to make sure they feel supported. So this is everything from, you know, personal health issues to families that are affected to racial bias to all of this is sort of all has sort of come together. And that's been a very challenging time. And, you know, 2020 was absolutely challenging. We even had to sort of make certain pivots in our own company where we moved away from certain products, a particular product, our talent product that was focused on job listings. We moved away from it because we just felt like that was a very sort of boom or bust type of product, which is, you know, if people are hiring, you hire. If people are not, you don't. And it was also somewhat disparate from our overall strategy. So, and that had some people implications, which is unfortunate always. But the point being that it was, you know, there's plenty of things that, you know, also sort of we had to navigate that were negative. But overall, though, I think we're better for it. We're stronger as a company. We're more, we've zoned in on what we are as a company. And, you know, that's helped. Mm -hmm. So one more transition I want to ask you about, and that is the acquisition by Process. How did that come to be? Yeah, it's somewhat organic. I think, you know, ultimately what really brought us together was that Process's mission statement is very, very aligned with what we care about, right? Correctly, it's like, you know, Process builds leading consumer internet companies and empower people and enrich communities. When you think about that statement, that speaks immediately to the heart and soul of this company. And that's what's so exciting about really sort of working with process. And for us, it's we were thinking about, it wasn't something that we sought out. It was something that, sort of, like I mentioned, organic. It just sort of happened with a sort of a series of events. But we've always been approached by companies throughout our history, right? And the question was around who was somebody that we could sort of partner with for the long term, who could help think big and really understood the potential of this company and the ability to go 10x uh, relative to where we are today and this diamond the rough type of approach. And really, who has an international and global perspective that matches the global community that we have, which is literally from all around the world, right? And then this EdTech angle, which, you know, with Larry Ill, who's the CEO of the EdTech portfolio, was a very interesting element for us because if you think about what we do, we implicitly allow people to learn, technologists and developers to learn, and the edtech angle is very exciting because learning does start with a question, generally speaking. You know, people really, that's how you typically learn versus just going, you know, in more traditional ways. And so this huge focus on community, emerging markets, international orientation and edtech were the reasons why we ultimately saw that this is really, you know, I think a powerful combination for us just to work in a long-term sense, but by thinking really big. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And kind of on that point of community, let's transition from the transition questions and talk a little bit about how the company thinks about community and collaboration and enabling these things at the scale at which you operate. 
Ultimately, like I've mentioned, uh, Sam, I think the hybrid workforces are here to stay, right? And like, you know, that is not going away anytime, even if the pandemic disappears. I think there's so many studies now done that employees really, really appreciate the flexibility of being able to sort of reduce their commute hours, two hours to you know, zero, and also be having the flexibility for them to sort of have a little bit more control about their balance, their work life, and so on. But at the same time, there's a very important, it's important to understand the impact of synchronous communication and collaboration versus sort of asynchronous collaboration. And so it's important as we sort of balance out things like burnout, et cetera. So ultimately, you know, when we think about how do we scale this community, I think a lot of it has to do with making sure that we are solving very specific problems to empower team members to share knowledge, you know, both proactively and reactively. And, you know, most of the sort of knowledge management tools that sort of exist today solve one or the other. I mean, wikis and file storage are focused on more like proactive knowledge sharing. So information is likely lacking and there's offer, they sort of offer no real way to foster collaboration and things like email and chats are very sort of instantaneous. So we believe that, you know, there's too much reliance on one person. So we really believe that there's an opportunity to build communities through our products and our public community, which is sort of a fundamental way in which we can do that. And so that's, I think, ultimately, these communities, when we think about the kind of the focus of how we want to scale, we think about it as the external community, and we talk about internal communities. And the external communities is public platform, and the public community, and then these internal communities is through Stack Overflow for Teams. And then we also have something in between that we call collectives on Stack Overflow, which is sort of in between, it's a sort of a pseudo public pseudo-private space on Stack Overflow where companies like technology companies like Google or GitLab, et cetera, or even open source communities like Golang or GoLanguage can build their communities on top of Stack Overflow in a little bit of a walled garden so they can have a sort of a very sort of a hyper-focused space on their technologies to engage with their power users and so on. So we really believe, and as Teresa, our chief product officer would say, you know, creating sort of link between public and private and having sort of the pebbles between those sort of the valleys, so to speak, is sort of how we are approaching scaling out these products. And all three of them are very relevant, public community, hybrid, as well as private. And so what's the relationship between Stack Overflow, the company, and the various communities that you steward? Is it a very hands-on one? Is it very distributed? What's the governance model? How do you think about all of the kind of management challenges that come along with growing communities? Yeah, I think, so ultimately, we have a few principles that we operate with to make sure that we are managing our relationship with the community in a productive way. So ultimately, I'll just give you overall principles, right? When we think about communities, and I've spoken about the subject a few times, is one is, we want to focus on a shared identity, a really big problem that everybody wants to work on together. And we have that here with, with Stack. Secondly, to create sort of sufficient incentives for people to contribute and participate in that system. And in our case, it's about really helping out your fellow developer. It's about showcasing your knowledge as the best Python programmer in the world, being recognized for it, and so on. Thirdly, it's about building with the community versus for the community. And that's important because as a company, you can't just sort of impose a bunch of rules into a very large group of people and say, just follow this, because that's not really inclusive. Plus, it's not really not really, not really going to have the buy-in to be able to do it. So it's somewhat common sense when you're trying to really operate at the scale to really have them as equal partners, them meaning the broader public community, and you need representation to be able to do that closely sort of and sort of thoughtfully sort of manage sort of process to make sure that they feel very included. 
And fourth, it's about breaking down silos and making sure we build bridges across you know, these various communities. And we're doing that with those products that I mentioned here. And then ultimately, that creates all these virtuous cycles across these various paid products and these public platforms. So specifically, as it relates to community and how we engage with them, there are many different mechanisms. You know, we've hired a really strong VP of community, formerly at Reddit, Philippe Boudet, who is who really manages now that entire effort, who is fantastic. And the idea is for us to partner hand in hand through our moderator mechanisms, through by listening to the community. And there are multiple mechanisms to do that. We have the meta user base. We have our loop newsletter that we send out. And so we're constantly making sure that we are partnering very deeply with users to make sure they feel as much of a vested interest when we make changes on the website. It is definitely a navigation. It's not, it's easier said than done. It takes up quite a bit of effort and on our team's part. And that's very unique about this company, but it is very possible because we have a very passionate group of people that care about this big problem that we're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. And do you see those challenges that you've Reference as being unique to technical communities, or is it they common across all different types of communities? Yeah, it's a good question. I think they're just different, right? I mean, like everybody has their own problems or challenges to sort of overcome. The good news is that we're not a social network, right? Even though we have collaboration at the heart of what we do, social networks have their own set of issues. At least for us, we're dealing with very objective information and it's not subjective in for the most part, right? It's like technical information is either you have the right answer on how to solve a problem and you have an incorrect answer. And that could sometimes come across as harsh, Sam, to be candid, right? Because it is very sort of right or wrong. And I think that we are also kind of trying to focus on that effort is to make sure how do people have more of a sort of softer landing spot so they get used to this sort of very right or wrong type of approach on the platform. And again, let's not forget that that approach has lasted for 13 years. You know, many companies have existed and died over the past decade during that time, but there are always trade-offs that you have to make. So this community of technical folks, yes, as all technical folks are, like we're all technical folks, we can be skeptical about a particular approach because it's always an engineering answer that may be better or so on. But that skepticism ultimately generates the right answer. And that's what people appreciate because they're able to solve their problem when they have an issue, right? And that's what's powerful about it. Mm -hmm. Let's transition to talking a little bit about data and AI at Stack Overflow. Just to kind of start things off, you know, where would you characterize Stack Overflow as being in its AI journey? Yeah, I would characterize it as fairly fairly nascent, like fairly early in our evolution. Now, having said that, I will say that Teresa, our chief people officer, and, and on her team, she has now hired Michael Forey, who is just an excellent data platform leader that he just came on board from Capital One. And so we've made a very deliberate decision to sort of invest in this space because, you know, again, like I mentioned at the top of the conversation, we have a tremendous amount of data that we have, right? That's the, the one terabyte of data that's available for the public to use and the 70 terabytes that we ultimately have on all sorts of dimensions. So we are very much the goal, spend some time with both Teresa and Michael, is that we want to empower people in the company and ultimately our community and our customers to be able to really sort of self-serve and make the most of the, of the data that we have, which is amazing, right? Once a year, we do a survey which polls about 100,000 people. This past year is 85,000 people to talk about developer trends, right? And that's our Stack Overflow developer survey that comes out every year. And that's great. It has a lot of great insights, but it's a very discreet once a year type of effort. Why not enable people, whether that's employees or beyond, 
to have that sort of insight on a regular on-demand basis. And that'd be very powerful for us to do. And so where we are is we were very early in establishing sort of the phases of rollout. And, you know, we're, you know, we're very much in the process of determining, establishing this, all the things that you'd expect, right? A data lake and a training regime. Uh, we're evaluating things like Azure Blob Storage and, you know, Snowflake and Databricks and even sort of some abstracting tools like Data Robot and all these sort of, that evaluation is happening very, very sort of at an early level. Beyond that, of course, phase two will all be about building out an actual data team with, you know, actual data scientists. Then ultimately, of course, will be things like optimizing for latency and internal runtime. So we're fairly early in that journey, Sam, despite all the data that we collect. And the team so far over the past several years has done a lot of things despite not having all those sort of best-in-class type of things in place, right? And one small example of this is we even built something called the unfriendly robot, data team did, and by building a very fairly early stage AI ML type of capability that basically goes and scans out all our Stack Overflow, Stack Exchange websites and flags where there are somewhat, you know, untasteful comments to a question. And so that is important to us, again, for novice users, et cetera, so they have a, a good experience. So that is one example of how, despite not having the full foundation built out, we are still able to do powerful things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Talked a bit about the main data set, this text data set that you have. Are there other data sets that you think are potentially interesting for the company? Yeah, I think the data that we collect is quite robust and has so much opportunity to sort of analyze it. But if you think about what we're collecting, we do collect structured data like users and, you know, it's kind of like, you know, all those sort of things, outposts and who's logged in and when they logged in and so on and so forth, the number of questions that were asked and answered and so on. But the vast majority of what we do collect is unstructured. So, you know, free form texts in our questions and answers and comments and tags and sort of the obvious examples. We also have things like network graphs where we are able to almost like, you know, if you think about like this sort of fluorescent liquid that goes and tracks exactly what happens when somebody experiences stack. A user searched for a particular item, they looked at then question one, question two, they copied code from question three, then they posted another question, you know, X minutes later. So like all that is very, very, you know, that's powerful. So I think that's sort of, and then of course we have code snippets beyond just text data. So there's a lot that we capture that and the commentary and the upvotes and downvotes and, you know, all that is great context and gives a really sort of good sense of the why, like why are people actually doing what they're doing? And that's very rich for us to be able to sort of go and analyze. And so that's that's what's exciting. Nice, nice. You mentioned the unfriendly bot. Robot. Can you tell us a little bit more about that project and kind of how it evolved, how it's used, that kind of thing? Yeah, you know, we should uh, have uh, Michael Forey do a deep dive on it. But I would say, you know, ultimately, it basically leverages machine learning to scan our public platform for unfriendly comments. And so that can be sort of addressed and eliminated, right? It's sort of a... It's a fairly early stage effort by us to make sure that our, our platform is welcoming to the next generation of coders. So one of the criticisms of Stack is that, hey, as a new user, it's quite harsh of an environment because you know I'm asking a very simple question and I got shot down by somebody on the platform because they thought it was not a great question. And the answer is that that system has existed and to make sure that the right answer and the right questions are asked, the quality of the information is very high. And that was a trade-off that was made as part of the principle of setting up the platform. But this friendly robot is mostly it's there to sort of improve the experience of the average user, the novice user. At the same time, we are evaluating other softer landing zones 
like a place where people can just sort of get guidance and kind of onboard a lot more sort of in a friendly environment, try out a few things before they actually go and ask their first question so they don't feel, you know, like a harsh experience. So it gives us a, an ability to address the issue, perhaps in some cases addressing the symptom, in some cases addressing, you know, sort of a more of a short-term fix. That hopefully gives you a little bit more context on what we're trying to do there. Got it. Got it. And earlier you mentioned in the context of the team's product integration with Slack and the product mm-hmm. being able to suggest answers. Is that also a kind of an ML-powered bot? Yes, in that also, so with Teams as an example, we our capability is very powerful in a couple of dimensions. So one is when people search for a question, they can do that on Stack Overflow for Teams. They can, we have, and by the way, we have companies like Microsoft and Bloomberg and Expensify and you name it, right? All big, big enterprises and high growth startups that are using our product. Microsoft has over 100,000 users on Stack Overflow for Teams. So it's a fantastic tool and capable product for enterprises to use to collaborate asynchronously. Now, as part, why it works so well is somebody asks a question, how do I do this on AWS within a company or within Microsoft apps? They're asking, how do I do this on Microsoft Azure? The question is, even when they ask that within MS Teams, which is integrated with Stack Overflow for Teams, it's going to prompt the user with three other questions that sound similar. Hey, like your colleague asked this question already, you know what I mean? And so don't ask another question to just add to the noise. Mm-hmm. Go look at the answer that was documented six months ago by somebody else. And you're a brand new employee to Microsoft. Go check this question out, you know, or when the new employee comes in, it, they're getting a package of 50 questions and answers and a bunch of long form articles, as we call them, long form content called articles. That gives them, and how do you onboard into Microsoft Azure at Microsoft, as an example, right? Or, yeah. or how do you use the tool and so on? So those prompts, and you know, is another example of how ML is fueling question prompts. Say, listen, here's another question that may be similar to what you're asking, and so on. So we are slowly incorporating those sort of features. But one of the point I'd mentioned to you is search capability. There's a lot that we could do there because, again, we have access to just a ton of information. We launched something called Unified Search last year, where Somebody asking a question again that we're using that Microsoft example, how do I do some Microsoft Azure? They could get five answers from the public community that is relevant. That we have about 250,000 questions on Microsoft Azure in the public community on Stack Overflow. And then it would also present maybe three answers from just a private, just within Microsoft, something that's specific that is confidential to Microsoft that's also presented as part of that answer set. So you're getting sort of this robust private and public combination. So we can imagine there's a lot more to do there with ML. And AI. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Well, folks in our audience most want to know is what do you see as the single most impactful potential use case for AI at Stack Overflow? Wow. Okay. I think this is a powerful question. I think that for us, the amount of data that we collect across the data that we have access to, and we know about a trend before a trend is actually formalized. And so we don't really fully sort of we don't really sort of realize that in the context of sharing that information with all the relevant people. So, for example, I mentioned previously doing a once a year developer survey to then sort of figure out that, you know, what Svelte is the top language that made its way to the top of the list this year is not like, yes, it's a discrete moment in time that we're calculating that. But for people to know about all the ways in which technology is changing and technology is changing very rapidly. The reason why we have so much innovation on new scripting languages and programming languages is that you know there are inefficiencies with each one, constantly optimizing for some set of variables and always continue to exist, right? So you had VMs in the early days, now you have serverless and you have you know, even beyond that, right? So the point is that it's a continuous evolution. 
And I think the ability to empower developers and technologists and people that are in the detail on a daily basis to say there is a better way to do this. Or, you know what, that answer may be outdated. And, you know, we hear is a more relevant answer. All those things, I think, are capabilities that AI, ML, uh, tool set in the future could help power and give people insight a lot earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, on the topic of trends in the survey, are there particularly interesting or surprising trends that have popped up as you've done the survey over the past couple of years? Yeah, I think, you know, some of the trends are interesting, especially as it relates to sort of the future of work and what people appreciate going forward versus previously. I think 70% of developers based on a survey are learning a new technology at least once a year, which is, you know, fascinating to us, which is like, wow, this is ultimately sort of a learning. Engineers love to learn. We know that. But we didn't realize 70% of developers do that, which is like a very high number. 60% of these developers are learning to code from online resources, which is kind of a hat tip to process in the edtech portfolio and ultimately what our role in that. And ultimately, I think people also really want to make sure that they have the flexibility. I don't have the exact stat, but in terms of like their ability to have a hybrid work environment, the ability to have flexibility in their work, you know, there's this grand resignation that you're hearing about in the industry Perhaps is people are making choices based on, you know, they, first of all, are they working for mission-driven organizations that they respect and they care about the mission? And secondly, do they have control in this sort of world that seems to reduce people's uncertainty? They have more control over their sort of professional lives. And I think that having the flexibility and hybrid work, et cetera, is sort of another sort of very interesting spike that we've seen in our surveys. Nice. We've recently seen some interesting evolution in the industry kind of around AI-based code generation, like OpenAI and GitHub collaborated on a tool called Copilot. Yeah. There are, you know, what do you think about the future of code generation or those kinds of AI models and Stack Overflow's potential role in that kind of thing? Yeah, I think there's a lot of potential with those elements, right? So Copilot's an interesting thing. It obviously uses a lot of data in the public sphere as it sort of is able to sort of recommend pieces of code. It doesn't come with early days is what I would sort of say, right? There's obviously enough. We've all read the feedback on perhaps it's sort of, it's not accurate enough or it's propagating errors. And, you know, those are the sort of downsides, but I'm very sort of positive about the direction in that people are constantly looking to automate. It's no different from what I mentioned previously, there's always this thing of how do you improve efficiency? How do you remove context switching, right? And for developers, it's important. And if you can sort of spoon feed as much of sort of the fundamental foundation as possible, that's pretty powerful. But also it comes with downsides. You can't just blindly sort of assume what's being generated is going to work because then you just, you've got a bunch of code that you just don't understand and that may have unintended consequences. So there's a lot more, I think, work to do around training those models, increasing the accuracy making sure the unintended consequences are less, keeping things like diversity through in design sort of in mind and all those sort of elements. It's a multi, it's a very complex problem. And I think in general, I think it's a good move because you obviously constantly want to automate and you know, we're optimistic and we, we believe we can play a bigger role with that as well because of the amount of data and the richness of the data that we have. And that's very much our stack over for Teams product is meant to do that in many ways, to suggest the right answers at the right time to people to get unstuck ultimately, right? In any issues yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, having played a bit with Copilot, at least in its current state, I'd almost rather have some automatic integration between Stack Overflow and the IDE that just tells me go. all the times that the mistake I'm about to make has been made and what the solution is. 
Yeah, indeed. That gives you more control. And uh, definitely we have, we're in the process of thinking through our roadmap for 2022 and uh, IDEs have sort of come up a few times, integrations with IDEs. And so I'll take that back to our product team. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. And so maybe to wrap things up, tell us a little bit about the kind of future state of Stack Overflow and MLAI enabled Stack Overflow in the context of this process acquisition, like what's possible kind of given where we are today and what you're looking at with the business? Yeah. So I think that, you know, ultimately, like I mentioned, we have Stack Overflow, the public platform is this massive platform that's accessed by 100 million people. We have Stack Overflow for Teams, that is the private version of that public platform that helps organizations like Microsoft and Bloomberg and so on really have asynchronous collaboration, increase efficiency and to build faster. And then we have our advertising business, which is called Reach and Relevance, which has things like employee branding and collectives on Stack Overflow and so on. So ultimately, with something like Teams, we want to, we're in the community building business. That's what we do, right? So we are making sure that Teams is sort of the de facto asynchronous collaboration technology for technologists and knowledge workers from all around the world. Uh, We have a very US-centric customer base in Teams today. And with our partnership with Process, we expect it to really sort of expand internationally and to replicate that. So you will see us do that on the go-to-market side in the coming year and years. That is one sort of big element of it. Secondly, we want to get even more deeply integrated into the technologist sort of workflow as an extension of the public Stack Overflow experience. So we know that every developer goes to Stack Overflow, let's say for the most part. So the question is like, how do we create connective tissue between that public platform experience and the private product to make sure that that ecosystem of products is like one, right? That's a core product or a must-have product that nobody can live without. And so you will see us do a lot more building that connective tissue between the public platform, products like collectives, which sits sort of in between, as I mentioned, allowing companies to build their their communities on Stack Overflow, and then Stack Overflow for teams and private organizations. And then ultimately, it's all about, again, making sure that we're building very thriving communities. So building knowledge and resources that are resilient and evergreen and capturing questions and serving up answers in the flow of communication through these sort of other synchronous tools like Slack and Microsoft Teams to prevent any sort of context switching and really enabling distributed teams to share and recognize and really sort of enable this rapid learning for people within organizations in an increasingly sort of distributed sort of world of working and sort of remote environment. And so really, ultimately, we want to be able to create sort of this culture of learning so that teams can upskill and scale and and really sort of do that very quickly uh, for the future of demand. So that's where we're going. Awesome. Well, Prashant, thanks so much. It was wonderful chatting with you. And I'll turn it over to Paul. Thank you, Sam. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.